Okay, uh, ladies, gentlemen, and students, um, thanks for coming. Uh, we have a session now on pitching strategies and how to pitch with, with, uh, with some editors. To my far left here is uh, Ross Golden Bannon, who is the editor of Food and Wine magazine, which is part of the Harmonious table, and they have, I think, five magazines in total, so plenty of opportunities there. And also a restaurant critic uh, with the Sunday Business Post. And uh, to my immediate left, is uh, Richard Oakley, who's from a publication called something like the Sunday Times. I don't know if maybe some of you have heard of it. And he's uh, in charge of uh, the edits of uh, the Sunday supplements. So, again, plenty of opportunities there. to get an insight into what he's looking for from future writers uh, on a freelance basis. So, I think um, Richard's going to start us off. So. On you go. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, Jason. Hi, everyone. Um, it's, it's nice to be in Buzzwell on a, a weekday morning and not have to be at a, a mind numbing. Uh, political conference, even though it seems that they're, they're all in this room, I feel like they're about to launch a new, a new political party. Um, it's great to see so many of you here today, and uh, I'd like to reassure you, I'm not going to talk for too long, maybe about 10 minutes. Um, I edit the Sunday section of the Sunday Times, and I've worked with the Sunday Times in Ireland for uh, coming up on, on 10 years. Uh, in that time, I've been news editor, deputy news editor, political reporter, and uh, motor correspondent. Uh, prior to joining the Sunday Times, I worked in the Sunday Tribune for five years uh, since I left UCD in 1998. So the Sunday uh, section of the Sunday Times is over a year old now, and it includes life, uh, home, food, and in-gear. Uh, we used to have two separate home and in-gear sections in, in Ireland uh, before, before Sunday was introduced. Home was predominantly filled with Irish copy, but in-gear was always British copy. Both home and in-gear are now predominantly Irish, and with the new section we've been able to introduce coverage of... Um, stuff that we've never had before in our food and life sections. So, for example, the newspaper now has its own Irish restaurant reviewer, wine writer, gardening, cooking columnist, and we can also run soft lifestyle pieces with Irish angles that we didn't have to do before. Uh, as Sunday editor, I probably oversee one of the biggest freelance teams in Ireland. There are just two full-time members of staff in the section, me and uh, Neil Pope. Everyone else who works for us is freelance, apart from design and photography and things like that. So it's about a team of about 20 freelancers at the moment. Uh, it's the highest number that the Sunday Times has, has, has ever really had, and it was, it was definitely a bit of a shock when they all showed up at the, the Christmas party and uh, made an assault on our, our free bar float. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of the, the freelancers I work with, they specialise in, in special areas. Some write, some write regular columns, and, but there are others then that have to pitch new ideas each week for a main feature in each section. We have four main sections with four main features, and those ones I'm always looking for ideas. In many cases, some of the writers, I would send them out ideas and hopefully they'd turn them around quickly I into articles. Uh, in other cases, they would pitch ideas to me and then we'd develop them together with the help of the policy team uh, as well. So uh, that's, that, that's where I'm coming from anyway, and uh, hopefully uh, it puts me in a position to offer some, some advice to you. Uh, later, I'll touch on several key things that, I, that I'd like to know if I was freelance and pitching ideas to editors. And... Uh, There'll be examples from my experience as Sunday editor, but I think they, they will apply to, to other, other media outlets and other newspapers, definitely. Um, I, I also know like, that there's many people here today who probably have um, successful freelance careers, and so at some point it's going to be you know, telling Granny to suck eggs, but uh, hopefully there's something here for, for everyone. Um, I'm definitely going to try and be as clear as possible, and by as clear as possible I mean, I mean totally blunt. Uh, I'd rather have you guys thinking I'm rude and arrogant than, than not be telling you things that I think are, are important. Um, so, so what's it like being a commissioning editor in a, in a dead tree newspaper in a country where sales are struggling? Uh, it's challenging and it's tough. Uh, it's probably more challenging, more tough than it's ever been, but it's engaging and, and still, still rewarding work. 
Uh, as I alluded to earlier, the, the number of staff we've worked in Sunday Times now is, is more or less, it's, it's the minimum required to get the newspaper out. The days of having high numbers on the editorial team are, are gone, and everything is done now at a frenetic pace. Uh, we're trying to keep quality high, and I think we do, but uh, everyone has to work harder than ever before. Um, basically then, because, because of that, I, I spend a significant amount of time just putting copy through, filling pages, dotting I's, crossing T's, cutting, pasting, tweaking, and uh, my favourite, deleting. Um, I, I don't have the luxury of sitting back at any stage and planning for weeks on end into the future. Instead, I, I think in spurts and on the go. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't, for example, tell you what's going to be in the Sunday section uh, next Sunday week. I can <coughs> probably tell you, <laughs> well, I, I actually couldn't tell you what's going to be in this Sunday's one, but uh, it's, it's only Monday, so I, I'm not panicking anyway, uh, just yes, anyway. Um, so I think other commissioning editors and other newspapers are, are in the same position, They're working full tilt all the time. So I don't have a lot of time to, to do the following. Um, I don't have long conversations on the phone about ideas that I know are not going to result in actual articles that I can run. I don't fully read and I don't respond to emails if I know their subjects are never going to result in articles that I can run. I don't, won't, and I've never provided feedback on articles or features that should never have been pitched to me. I don't discuss pitch ideas with people when I can tell they've spent little or none of their own time trying to develop those ideas before contacting me. I don't read or respond to emails pitching ideas to me when it's clear the person sending them has never read Sunday sections. I also don't respond to emails pitching ideas I've run already or that have appeared in other newspapers. Mm. And most days, I'm so busy, I refuse to click on attachments. If someone has something to tell me, they can put it in the body of an email. I spend enough time clicking as it is. Now, I know that sounds terrible, and that's what I said at the beginning, but like walk a mile in a, in a commissioning editor's shoes. I have 36 blank pages to fill every week, and if I have time to spare from actual editing, I need to spend it on ideas and features that I know are going to make it into the paper ones that are likely to work out. I don't have time to start from scratch on things. That's not to say I won't start from scratch. Many of the freelancers working for Sunday now started by sending me emails out of the blue. There's the thing was, there was something about their emails that grabbed my attention and held it. There was evidence of initiative, resourcefulness and ability, references and links to past work of a high standard. The pitch itself had been de developed to the point where I could easily understand it and see its potential. A list of talking heads that can be interviewed for the proposed article was included. The journalist in question also had a solid idea of what those talking heads were likely to say. They'd mentioned ideas for photographs that accompanied the proposed article. Case studies had been sourced and were already in the bag. There was also evidence of extensive research having been carried out, complete with cutouts of other relevant articles and links to useful background materials. And most importantly, there was a clear indication that if I got back to those journalists and said, write me that article, that the article would appear fairly quickly. So when I'm contacted by new writers in this way, I always arrange to, to meet them uh, and talk to them over a coffee. We talk through the Sunday section, uh, we have a chat about their ideas and I explain uh, what is needed to get any features we agree on into the section or over the line. I, I then wait hoping that the articles we agree on will arrive in a usable format, and usually they do. In, in cases where they do, I then file that person under you for useful, and if ideas occur to me that I know will suit them, I send them their way. If they send me emails, I will read them because I know they're going to be good. I would happily have a long conversation with them, working through where they should go for next and how best to make uh, an article work. As long as the ideas keep coming from them and quality is high, they then become a pillar of the section for me because they're people I can rely on and I guarantee them regular work. Again, again I know I, I sound terrible. I, I, I actually tweeted this last night that there's no way to say what it is you, you want without sound, sounding like a total crap. But well, most freelancers are top class, and, and uh, we, I couldn't get my section out without them. Some are going about it all wrong. Um, last week, for example, I was pitched a 3,500 word article. The longest feature in my section is 1,400 words. This one was about a health, 
a health issue and, and that was a problem because I don't run health issues in the Sunday section. Sometimes I get sent pictures for articles that should have been sent to the culture section. Often I get emailed travel pieces, which, which are great, but I don't run travel. I still get pitched news stories, even though I'm a news editor for over a year. And every now and again, ideas are emailed me, starting with the following. The Irish Times didn't want this, but... <laughs> 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 Just the other day, I was told that an article pitched me would be perfect for the life section. I forwarded it on to the Sunday Independent. <laughs> to be fair, these are extreme examples. Many pitches are extremely good from top quality freelancers. And, and as I said, my section couldn't be brought out without them. So I, ne- I need free- freelancers more, more probably than, than they need us. So the more I get, the better. But I think there, there are some tips that, that I would have for anyone wanting to know how to deal with uh, difficult editors. Um, <coughs> if you can, do meet them, or at least try to find out who the editor you're pitching is and what makes them tick. Don't rock up to their office unannounced demanding to see them, but do, do stalk them. Follow them on Twitter, maybe. Read, the, read their blogs if they have one. And if you know someone who works with them or, or writes for them, grill them for information. Ask other freelancers of their experience to find out the editor's routine. What would be a good time to pitch an article? What day is their deadline day? What, how do they like articles pitched? Will they take phone calls or emails better? Will they click on attachments? This is the type of stuff PR people find out about editors, and if they know it, then you need to do too, because PR people have an advantage. They don't want to be paid. I work, me, if, me for example, I work Monday to Friday. I never get in before 10 a.m. My Mondays are busy, Tuesdays are okay, Wednesdays are crazy, Thursdays are a war zone, and Friday morning is less busy than Friday afternoon. But about five, from about 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Fridays, I sit doing nothing, waiting for the subs to finish so I can clear pages and go home. Sometimes during these hours, I actually do read emails, and I also respond to them. The other thing is, I never answer, I, I never answer emails, but I always answer my landline phone. Uh, I don't know why, but I always do. When it rings, I just pick it up. <laughs> so that's the best way to get, to get me. And I think you need to find that, that information out about at other editors. Uh, my sec- second bit of advice is a little bit self-evident, but, but read the newspaper you're pitching to. Make sure your pitch is tailored to suit the section you're aiming to have it published in, and make sure it hasn't been done before, or if it has, that you have a new angle. I mentioned this earlier, but I often get ideas sent to me that are fine and would work. It's just I don't have anywhere to put them. People send me ideas for columns that I don't need or covering issues that I don't cover. I, I get sent gardening ideas. I, I have a gardening columnist. I get sent cookery ideas. I have a cooking columnist. And I get sent opinion columns. I don't have any opinion on Sunday. But on the other hand, I never get enough light features. Uh, somehow these never get pitched to me, yet I'm always desperate for them. Uh, I also get regularly get articles pitched to me that are not, not relevant to the section at all. Um, but uh, the other day I was, I, was, I was sent an email about a, about a depression initiative and depression is a si- serious issue obviously and it's one that the Sunday Times uh, regularly covers but it's not one that we're going to run on Sunday Sunday is the light fluffy section of the, the Sunday Times it's got quirky human interest like stories uh, an article on depression it's, it's just not going to make it in and for freelancers to send me that you're kind of wondering did they read the section where do they think we're, we're coming from I mean all sections have a philosophy and I think you've got to know that you've got to tailor your pitch accordingly um, so yeah, so make sure you know who you're pitching to, and, and if not, buy the paper over, over a couple of weeks, read the sections, uh, examine it, see how it works. Uh, do they have people who write the same articles every week? And if so, they're not the ones to pitch for. Look for the ones where there's a mix of writers writing them, and then try and get in that mix. Uh, I also wouldn't pitch ideas. That's a mistake people make. They, they pitch ideas, one line. I think we should do something about you know, Irish people living in America. Um, I pitch article plans. Uh, spend time developing the idea before you propose it. The more time you spend on it, the better your proposal will be. If the slot you're aiming for requires case studies and interviews with experts, then have an idea of who it is you'd get for those. Better still, speak to some of them beforehand and put a taste of what they might say in the article. 
uh, basically do, do everything you can to convince the editor that there is an article at the end of this and, and, and that they don't have to put in a lot of work to, to get it over the line uh, I'd always send editors links to, to previous work uh, especially if you have a proven track record of published work uh, I wouldn't send too many but just the key, key ones the ones that are, are relevant mention what outlets you've written for uh, and name check stories or features that would, would ring bells uh, also if an editor gives you the go ahead to write a piece do try and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, try not to send endless, endless progress reports. Just to, you know, there's a point during endless progress reports where a commissioning editor just goes, I'd have been faster do, doing this myself. And you, you don't want them to get to that point. Just, you know, you're good freelancers. Trust your instincts. Go and get the thing done and send <coughs> it back. And if the editor wants tweaks, they'll come back to you. Uh, if, if, if an editor gives you, an, gives you one of their ideas um, that you haven't proposed to them, definitely get that done quickly. Uh, you know, we get paid to come up with I ideas for our section, but there's a finite number, and it's, it's not easy. And so when you when you send them out and they don't ever come back, and you're wondering, can I can I give that to someone else to do? It, it can get very very annoying. Uh, don't file a novel either. Uh, find out like how much copy is needed. File that and a good bit more. And a lot of the time, I get huge huge pieces, and people say, you know, you you just sort that out. But it's very daunting to sit down and 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 get a 4,000 word piece down into a 1,200 word piece. I mean, it's doable, but I, I would prefer, you know, I can get 2,500 words down into 1,200 words quite quickly. And, you know, but if, if there is extra material that you have and, and that you would have liked to include or that you can't fit, just put it in a, in a separate email and say, you know, here is some extra notes if you want to take more. But most editors do a good job of <coughs> looking through that and trying to find out if there's stuff that they, they really do want in the piece. Another thing is not to file and uh, disappear off the radar. Uh, a lot of the time, I get stuff sent to me, and it might be a couple of weeks before I get to it, but the, the week I get to it, um, I can't get the journalist to check things. Uh, a lawyer, you know, a lawyer raises something with me, a sub raises something with me as the deadline approaches, and I, and I can't check something. In extreme cases, I might have to swap out a piece, so, so you miss out an opportunity to have a, a piece published. Um, I also wouldn't be precious. Uh, there's no room for anyone at, at all in, in, in any position in newspapers or media to be precious, I think. Uh, you have to be prepared to rewrite, you have to be prepared to do more research, and you have to be prepared to make more calls. If an editor asks you to do more work on an article, they're, they're not doing it because, because they, you know, they're trying to annoy you. They're doing it because they think it's needed to get the article over the line. So they are, they are trying to help. Uh, and the other thing, I think pictures, images, and possibly even headlines. <coughs> uh, we, we used to have a chief sub-editor in, in London called Tony Alloy. And he used to say, <laughs> when you're trying to come up with ideas to illustrate focuses, he used to say, yeah, but you, you did it all wrong. You didn't think of the image first. Uh, so he used to say that image first, headline next, and then worry about getting the copy. But uh, he was only half serious, but I, I, think, I think it's something you, you do need to, to, to bear in mind. Um, if you have an idea, try to think about what it's going to look like in the paper. Try to develop it to the point where you can actually see it, on, on, you know, if it's in the Sunday section, where you can see it on the Sunday. Uh, you know, you've, our Sunday section is... is like there's six, seven pictures in some of the features, uh, and if the pictures aren't good, the, the piece is not going to run because there's a guy comes along on Thursday in London, and he looks at all my pages and he goes, "I like the look of that, I like the look of this, and I like the look of that." And if he doesn't like the look of it, he throws it out, and he doesn't he doesn't bother reading the text; he just throws it out because it's it's a design-led section in many ways, and so we have to think photography. And if you're pitching stuff, you need to as well. And finally, um, I, I, I don't don't let a commissioning editor twist your work into something that you're not happy with just just to get it published. And um, I have a policy of after I, I, I check email, I will send it back to freelancers for their for their approval. Uh, and if they're they're not happy with some of the editing, then then I will change it. 
uh, we might argue about it, but but I will change it. It's your byline that goes goes on the pay, page, not mine. I, ju- I just make it fit. So um, I, I think that's very important. So I, I hope I, I've been of some help, um, and, and thanks for putting up with me. Um, as I said, yeah, the Sunday section is open for freelance contributions. Uh, I have a high number of food writers. I have a, a good few active sports writers, but I would love more life feature, feature writers. The piece is 1,200 words. You need two 300-word case studies. And the pay is 375 euros. And yeah, my direct line, 479-2451. Fridays between 5 and 8. Thanks. I'm sure uh, there's plenty of questions, and I have a few myself, but uh, I'm going to hand over to Ross first. But uh, just to say that that's uh, some of the most genuinely interesting... Uh, I've shared these sessions three or four times now, and that's one of the most interesting and, and informative things I've ever heard. And I think a lot of it applies to other sections in other newspapers, not just uh, not just your own, just in terms of the, the tactics and how you should go about it and how you should treat your editors. Um, I would pull you on, on, on two points. Uh, there's plenty of room for preciousness and the best you're <laughs> in my heart. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'll just leave it at that. You don't need bad jokes from me. So, next, uh, Ross Golden Byron from Harmonia, um, staple of magazines, and also the Sunday Business Club. very much. Um, oh, round of applause for having started. I've obviously made the terrible mistake of speaking after Richard Oakley, who has covered a huge number of areas that I was going to cover. Well, I can give you a, I can give you a, a, a question now, if you want to. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I'll go ahead anyway. But, um... I've taken a slightly different tack and um, firstly just I suppose to introduce myself that yes I'm I'm the editor of uh, Food and Wine magazine and just to say that uh, our circulation is up 15% in the last year we're the only food or gourmet shall we say magazine in Britain and Ireland whose circulation has gone up um, in the last year everybody else has gone down from anything from 2% to 22% including Jamie Oliver would you believe it so um, uh, and I think the reason for that is because, as it was intimated here, food is huge. However, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of work, uh, paid work in it. Um, I'm also uh, the, uh, the restaurant critic at the Sunday Business Post. <coughs> so I suppose making the point there that, you know, there might not even be a paid job there either uh, in the next uh, few months. Uh, I do a lot of political writing as well. I'm the board member of Marriage Equality, so I do a lot of... Uh, political writing as well, and uh, I was a junior spin doctor in the House of Commons for a Labour Member of Parliament uh, as well. So I've kind of done quite a lot of writing. And what I'm doing is I'm going to be drawing um, a kind of a, a, a mix and gather of points from a book that I've written called How to Write About Food. It's an e-book available online, howtowriteaboutfood.com, for $2.99. Um, and in fact, it is own. Uh, it, it says how to write about food, but probably several people have come back to me and said to me. Uh, I should rename it just, you know, how to write. And essentially, it's the top 50 bloopers that cross my desk as an editor. So I'm not going to go through all 50 of them. I'm going to kind of pick out a few of them, and then if you have any questions after, after them, I'm happy to, to, to talk about them as well. So some of them, I think, are going to really appeal to people who are just starting out, and then some of them will maybe appeal to people who are a little bit more seasoned as well. So uh, it'll be hopefully a little bit for everybody. The problem with blogging, the problem at the moment with contemporary journalism in many ways is that bloggers are, un, uh, you're in a, really, uh, being a, doing a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, if you've got a blog, you can raise your profile a little bit, you can link in when you're doing a, a pitch to an editor, 
but at the same time you're also undermining your future earnings as well and you're undermining the, the, the sector as well I'm not trying to make a judgement there I'm just saying that's an issue we might, might want to think about it's creating uh, difficulties uh, for all of us really um, on, the, on the same side I would say it's a good idea to, to, to blog so it's a tough one um, firstly uh, technology um, as the enemy um, and the myth of desktop publishing okay it doesn't matter how much money you've kind of touched on this a little bit it doesn't matter how much money you spent on your your software your word processing software and PDFs and all that kind of stuff it means absolutely nothing to an editor it means absolutely nothing to our designers so if you spend time creating lovely columns and putting in different colours copy and this is bold and that's italics and oh I put this in three columns here you know we'll never get commissioned again because we spend 45 minutes then trying to strip all of that out before we send it on to the designer and because if we send it to the designer they probably give us a bunch of debate so I have to spend all the time pulling that out so all that we're interested in is raw text the raw text just the words I'm not interested in your ability to create fancy fonts and any of that anyway the font changes it's not your, you don't get to choose the font by the way I don't get to choose the font the designer decides the font so um, just to keep and that makes life easier for you that's all we want copy stars hear all the words and if you think something should be in a panel by all means put in brackets you know panel here or you know box here or statistics here or whatever it is um, but don't, don't worry about all that word processing stuff that expensive stuff that you bought it's useless when it comes to our world I'm afraid so and as you were saying about you know attachments pointless really we just want, want, the, want the words and one of the reasons behind that of course is that your desktop uh, software is going to be slightly different from mine, which will be slightly different from, from, <coughs> from the designer. So that means that anything that you put in there will get garbled if you put anything in. Quite often, I'm sure you've seen an ampersand that's been turned into something crazy, or you've put an accent on something and it just becomes gobbledygook. That's that process. So you're actually better off putting in brackets fava or accent or ampersand or whatever it is, or italics or whatever it is that you want to put in. Um, so uh, uh, the, the other area I'm just slightly more esoteric I suppose is that and back to what I was saying earlier is, you know your story is in the primary source um, if you are it's interesting what's happened in journalism now in that the only areas that are really using the primary source now are maybe crime um, journalism and obviously theatre books uh, uh, theatre uh, sorry, uh, restaurant reviews, you know, their primary sources, you're eating the food, you're seeing the movie, whatever it is that you're doing, and then you're writing about it. In the vast majority of other areas, it's all done on press releases. And sadly, there are a lot of journalists who just paste and copy the entire press release into, into a feature. And, you know, the, the PR people spot that, and we spot that too. But um, your story is in the primary source. That is so key, that's so important because that's the final gap for you guys that's the final gap if you're able and the reason for that is because the number of full-time employees in newspapers and magazines has shrunk they do not have the budget to employ somebody to re really research a story over six months and not deliver any copy they absolutely don't have that they need copies from journalists every day or every week or every month or whatever it is they don't have the finances to do that 
so that's why that has crept in now and we've so few so, so little that's done around primary sources so I think that's a gap for, for freelancers to be honest that if you think there's a story somewhere and you can between all your other stuff you can come with a pitch certainly tons of stories around food you know and, and I know five or six stories that I'm not able to at the time to explore and none of my colleagues in the Food Writers Guild have time to explore that are really explosive but we just don't have the time or the resources and you are able to pitch to an editor the, an idea and you had as, as Richard was saying the, the leads that you think you have you walk the, the big story that you think it's going to be and you can, you can actually take the time to research that over a period of time I think that's where your opportunities may lie because uh, full-time employees in newspapers and magazines don't have the time to do that um, the other area is fact versus opinion this is also relating back to that you know there's a, a big blurring between fact and opinion now and, uh, and that is a function of what happens to uh, the publishing world and what's happened is now bloggers have ended up writing in quite a casual way and not really realising that in many ways they're leaving themselves open to, to libel and then when they offer copy to us you know we could very easily um, miss potential uh, libel I just there's one here I don't know if any of you have heard of a blogger called um, uh, Liu uh, let me see where is it sorry to uh, uh, oh Taiwanese food blogger Liu she was jailed for comments she made about a restaurant that she visited now interestingly about this when you drill down into this story even the newspapers themselves misreported it. They erroneously said that she was jailed for saying the beef noodle was too salty. But when you go back to the primary source, you discover she was actually jailed for a number of unprovable accusations, as well as stating that all the food was too salty. I'm going to stop there for a minute and ask, does any, that phrase there, all the food is too salty, have you any comments on that, why you think she might have ended up in jail for saying that? No, no, no. She went to the restaurant. She did go to the restaurant. She couldn't eat everything. She couldn't possibly have tasted every single item of food on the menu. I don't have a photo here. She couldn't possibly have tasted every item on the menu. So, um, you know, but but she has still is. That's an idiom. After all, too salty. That's all really boring. I hate all that stuff. They're idioms that we use every day that are perfectly reasonable when we're chatting to our friends. But because the casual style of blogging, she used an idiom that is perfectly reasonable in conversation, but in, in the written word, it got her, it got her imprisoned. And I, I would catch a lot of stuff comes into us like that as well. And you, know, you have to just be really careful how you phrase things. Quite often, like a good get-out way is, you know, this didn't really taste like the kind of organic lamb that I've ever had before but you know I'm not saying this isn't organic lamb but the inference is so you might you know you can get away with that you have to be really really careful about fact versus opinion and um, libeling people um, the other um, where were you now uh, fact versus opinion technology as a friend um, the Strictly speaking, you know, the benchmark in subbing is that you need three pairs of eyes on a piece of copy. Um, that has been, again, salami sliced away to two pairs of eyes, and um, I know colleagues in the Irish Times have told me that some copy there isn't even being subbed. They write it and it goes straight to print. It's all very, very dangerous, but this is what... Um, so that's what... 
so that, that's what's mm-hmm. happening and the thing about that is you may think well you know that's not my problem I submitted the copy and they didn't sell it properly you personally you can be sued personally as a journalist and the publisher can be sued as well so you're not off because somebody else published it so you could be sued as well so you need to be really careful with your copy but also this is technology as a friend on a really basic level if we are missing out on those three pairs of eyes please use spell checker <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you all a spell checker on your software. It's extraordinary the number of people who submit copy and clearly haven't spell checked it. I find that kind of a little bit bizarre. Um, so, um, again, continuing in no particular order, um, uh, and I suppose talking around uh, clean copy, we have this phrase, I don't know if you use it in, in our office, about, oh, he has lovely clean copy. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily mean it's really creative and exciting, but it means it's just spotless, there's never a mistake in it, it's always laid out exactly the way it's supposed to be laid out. And, it's, uh, and of all the contributors that come in, you go, okay, I'll save that for my trees to read because I know it's not going to wreck my head. Um, <laughs> So, and then you've, other, and the other extreme of that is like people who send in very poor copies, but they're just brilliant at what they do, so you just suffer it. But, you know, when it comes to crunch and a, a, a journalist or a, an exhibition, in there's a choice between somebody who sends in relatively okay copy that's on time, that's really clean, um, that doesn't cause them any problems, and somebody who's creating lots of difficulties for them in the long run that first person is going to hang on to the job. And like, given the choice between commissioning both, you're going to end up one for the other. And, and, and the problem for, for us, I think, as Irish people, is we don't get deadlines. We just don't get it. And it's like, oh, it'll be tomorrow. No, no, tomorrow's too late because we're going to print. And it's one of the really difficult things about working in Ireland, I think, is around deadlines. We, Irish people really don't get them. Um, I thought I'd just make a few, a few points just about... Um, you know the right, the craft of writing, and around that, you know, and are you sure you can write, and do you know what writing is, and all all that kind of stuff. Just just to say a few words around that. Um, you know, when when an artist is painting a picture, they don't start in a you know those beautiful big historical paintings that you see. You know, maybe the coronation of Napoleon. Yeah, you know, they didn't start in the corner and work in every single detail and make that all absolutely perfect and work their way up across the whole painting. That's not how they did it. They got uh, a rough brush strokes across the whole thing got all that down and then slowly starts to fit in the pieces and that's what writing is and it's a great phrase by Mae Finchie you know don't get it right get it written blah get it all down just get it all down and then go back to it and writing actually isn't writing writing is rewriting you rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and you tighten it all up and that's how you get it done um, Word count, I don't know, you sound like you're not maybe as strict on word count as, as, as I am. I'm eight, if you can't tell me it's an 800 words, probably not worth telling. Um, 800 words and panels work really well in the magazine. In fact, they work quite well in newspapers too. I've noticed over the years that you know, even opinion pieces in, quite, in broadsheets have begun to shrink and they're, they're, they're putting other things in there because people are so used to reading in smaller chunks. I mean, you know yourselves, if you see a paragraph that's that long, compared to a paragraph that long, it's like, oh, God, am I going to get through it, even if you're interested in the subject? So, um, if you feel you've got a, a, a feature that is more than 800 words, it kind of needs to be broken up in some way, so that the reader's going to be engaged by it. So, if your word count is 800 words, 
uh, and if you have a regular column, if you're lucky enough to have a regular column, or even a feature that's about 800 words, and you stuff that has to go into it, you know? Uh, if it's a lifestyle one, you're going to have to have the suppliers and their names and all that kind of stuff, or you need the flight times, or you need the time zone, and all that kind of stuff has to go into whatever the feature is. They all go in first, then you do your word count, and then you go, oh, actually, I've only 600 words left to do. You don't write the piece and then try and ram in all the stuff that you absolutely have to get in there. Um, so, uh, so that was that. Uh, yeah, the other thing is, and I mean, this is a bit, you know, I don't object to this, but I know that other editors do. You know, some people throw in a headline, and, you know, that's not the worst thing to do in the world, you know? It probably will never get used, but it's a starting point for a sub or for me to get going with. Oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting, and you play with it. You know, but I suppose the point around that is the most stuff that you deliver for the editor, the better. And part of that is by pictures, which we were speaking about earlier on. If it isn't, if we've no pictures to illustrate, illustrate the story, especially in the magazine, we're just not going to be able to run with it. So, and you know, the big companies, the big firms really know that. So, you know, whereas Kellogg's are able to get me a beautiful shot on a white background of their product and the copy and price and where it's going to be on and everything like like that. Uh, wonderful guys over in the west of Ireland making Connemara Hill lamb. You'd be fascinated trying to get a picture of it. But you, that's the picture you want. But unfortunately, you can probably fill the page a lot quicker with Martin Spencer's and Kellogg's and all these other people. So if you're covering something that's a little bit more obscure and you've got a great picture of it, uh, all the better. Um, I thought maybe I'd conclude with um, there's kind of a few other points there, but I think maybe we could throw it out to some conversation. I thought I'd conclude with maybe some of the practicalities as well. Um, uh, <laughs> I work on a monthly cycle. So for us, uh, Print Week is not the time to ring me and pitch a story to me. Um, or ring me again an hour later. Or bombard me with emails. Even though I told you an hour ago that really I'm not going to be able to take any pictures. And in fact, it doesn't, you know, even if you think, oh, feck it, sure, I'll send them the email and you can look at it next week. That would be three or four hundred emails down the list by the time it gets to the next Monday. So we usually go to print on a Thursday at the first week of the month. And then on the Friday is my day when I've kind of like a bit of time to take stock and look around and go through some of my emails. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad Richard made those points about emails because now I can confess that I, got, I get easily a couple of hundred emails every day. And unless I know they're relevant to the publication I'm working on, or there's a really smart subject line, I often don't even open them. I don't even reply to them. And, you know, the big mistake is to put in the subject line, Food and Wine Magazine. Yeah, see, I know I work at Food and Wine Magazine. <laughs> so I, I kind of don't wish really <laughs> to tell me that. So you, your subject line is actually one of your most, most powerful tools. You know, article on food, yeah, you might want to be a bit more specific, mm -hmm. you know. So you really need to put in your subject line something really powerful that's going to grab when they're when the editor's flying through a list of 200 emails you know what's going to catch my eye um, the other thing is we actually have a house style that we send out to our journalists and also to photographers um, so you know it's worth maybe finding out because some publications actually have their house style online you know so it's worth finding out what the house style is um, I think connected with that also is tone you know um, not to repeat too much what, what Richard said, but you know the number of people who ring up and pitch stuff to me that clearly haven't read the magazine—it's kind of insulting, really. You know, um, 
and you know I, I think also if you want to specialise food probably isn't the area but if you are going to specialise don't just read one issue of publication read several of them and get a feel for them and get a feel for the tone of the kind of language that they're using um, uh, what's the other thing is um, yeah I have, a, I have a file called the back pocket file so if somebody pitches an idea to me that's unseasonal that's really helpful to me because uh, politically we really really have to be seasonal but if something comes in that's unseasonal and say look I can't use it now or an idea I can't use it now say you know I could, I'd commission it and take it in and I'd need to have a chat with you because you know strictly speaking you don't get paid until it ends up in print um, but you know I always like to have one or two things in my back pocket so in the last week during print on the run up to print week if some disaster befalls us then I can just pull that out and use that feature to replace uh, whatever's happened. So, if you're, if, you know, I think it's a nice concept to offer to an editor if you've got something and they're not really keen on it now, but might be interested if you say, look, will I write it up and you can keep it in case you need an, a, in an emergency. Anyway, it's just an idea. I do that anyway. Um, uh, just finally, I would just suppose I would say on a wider issue with regard to engaging with the world away from the computer. You know, uh, like go out and see stuff, go out and do stuff. Um, you're not going to get inspiration by constantly by on, on Twitter and Facebook and and the machine in front of you. And I think like Irish people are quite poor at engaging culturally with uh, the world around us. And you know, I read a book a while ago about you know, where do you, you know, about inspiring for writing fiction. I'm trying to write a bit of fiction, so it was a really nice idea about you know, at least give yourself one day a month when you go out there and engage with something cultural or something you don't ever normally do or you know you know Noam Chomsky was speaking at UCD a little bit while ago the million miles in my world you know engage in stuff like that going to quirky exhibitions um, or as the American author suggested why don't you go to the mall and get some inspiration mm -hmm. I'm joking by the way to the mall so that's where you're going to get your inspiration because otherwise if you don't you're going to be pitching me another feature on Cupcakes. And I, I think I might shoot myself if I get another feature on Cupcakes. And in fact, I'm now predicting inside of David McWilliams a cupcake bubble. There are so many people making cupcakes in this country. It's going to collapse in your ears. Okay, can we have a round of applause for you? Again, excellent points, and I'm just going to make a couple of uh, <laughs> points, and then I'm going to ask a few questions to to each of our panelists, and then throw it open to the floor. So, uh, first of all, food critic and, and, and gay marriage activist. I'm not gay myself, Ross, but I quite fancy mm -hmm. nice restaurants. So, give me a call now. It's mandatory. Gay marriage. <laughs> okay. So, you say throw in a headline. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that because that's always been uh, something that we've been told not to do, although I did get uh, a headline recently into my own newspaper, Irish Bank Forges in the Smithy of Its Soul, a botched James Joyce coin. <laughs> I'm so proud of and because in, 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 the, in the era of Google and SEO, it's just very, very hard. Jailed <laughs> uh, for libel. Not, no, no one went to jail, but a restaurant in Belfast called Goodfellas, libel. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an expert witness of that case. Um, shocking stuff. First time I'd ever heard of an opinion being considered libelous. Uh, this seems to be a growing thing. People are taking offence more and more at, uh, at what people's opinions are. I never knew how an opinion could be wrong, but it's definitely something to think about. And you know, 
Ross, um, I don't, I don't know Ross, and I don't know, you know anything about your, your your work before your restaurant critic. People tend to look at features journalists, restaurant critics, people like that is somewhat less serious, less important. I used to be a, a technology journalist. It's the same story, but there, there are real legal implications there. It's not just guys in war zones or people writing on politics that have to worry about lawyers. Um, don't typeset. Absolutely, my first job in the press was laying out newspapers. Keep your awful word documents away from me. <laughs> and. Um, the eyes on copy question, again, at my newspaper, which is one of the most respected newspapers in the United States. Uh, there's no copy editors, no subs. It's all gone. So, send clean copy. It's very important. It does get read. It does get checked. But it's just not as good as it used to be in the old days when dinosaurs like me roamed the earth. Now, the first question for Ross. And if you want to write this down, and uh, then I'll ask Richard this question, and then we'll throw it to the floor. Um, when I was in the magazine sector, we had an expression called Christmas in July. Um, is that still the case? So what I'm getting at is there uh, in the newspaper you pitch a story you've got to get it in if it's news that day to feature you might get a couple of days or maybe a week. What are the lead times like on a, on a, on a magazine? Yeah we call it mag lag. So um, it's where are we now? Where are we in the year? April. It's April. Oh okay I'm doing barbecues for August now. <laughs> so and it's kind of weird because when it comes to Christmas, I go, why are all these people doing Christmas? I do Christmas in September. <laughs> so, yeah, we are a good three months behind, which has particularly difficulties for us because we're trying to promote seasonality. So we're trying to buy seasonal, uh, unseasonal food and take photographs of it out of season to promote it within season. And then, of course, as most of you know, in the magazine sector, you go to print with the April issue in uh, March. And it's off the shelves the first week in, in, in March. It's all that very weird thing around that. We actually do work out a strategy for the entire year around the themes that we're going to do for the whole year. And I would have worked out actually 80% of what, we, what each issue is going to have. So I'll know nearly all my features. So it's a bit of a battle to, to get into the magazine, to be honest, because um, I, I've kind of worked out what I'm going to do already. But if I had worked out a theme with something and I don't actually have a, somebody to do it for me, you know, that's kind of your, your, your opening. But we, we do work very, very far in advance. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is, again, um, sorry to in, interrupt you, actually, but so on that note, if you did email me and say, where are we now, April, if you did email me and say, um, would you be interested in something, now I have this covered, but I'm just giving you as an example, would you be interested in anything on back-to-school food? for kids and family, I'd be like, oh brilliant, it's going to turn on to me now, yeah, I'd reply to that, because I'm like, oh great, now that will have that ticked, ticked off now for later in the year, so you'd have more chance getting something out of me or a magazine, especially on the downtime, on stuff much further ahead, um, than kind of saying, you know, thinking, oh now next month is such and such, you know, because we all have to be really super efficient in how we manage our, our, work, our workflow, so I would say that's a good tip, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Sorry, to no, no, I've got another question for you. Don't worry. About it. Um, I don't know what the, the sort of breakdown here is between people who work for newspapers or want to work for newspapers and ones who want to work for magazines and, and, and understand the differences in, in requirements. I've worked for both um, and in the magazine sector. I think Irish people have a tendency to ignore it. There's actually a living to be made in Irish magazines, particularly if you include the trade sector. It may not be the most exciting. It's not going to be like food and wine, where it's you know kind of glamorous. Um, if you're after glamour, there is food and wine, there are the women's glossies, there's Irish tatter, things like that. But there's, there's solid, if slightly dull work to be done yeah. for Irish printer. Yeah. But in terms of what you require from journalists, is it different from a newspaper? Because 
and even richer here's got different requirements from a news editor, and then presumably you have further different requirements from a features editor on, on a newspaper. Um, How do well, you want their copy? Is what I'm saying. Well, uh, you know, I, the the thing is, uh, kind of what I said is like it's it's, it's very clean, but um, commissioning around food is quite. You know, it's quite specialised, and you know, it's just kind of one of these areas where you know people think just because they can eat, they know how to write about food, mm-hmm. and you know, it, 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 it's a bit like oh, I can run, so that means I can do a marathon. Not really. Um, so the whole area around food is there's big gaps. What I would say to you is there's big gaps in Ireland around food knowledge for people like me. There are very, very few very good food photographers. Very specialised area. Um, Food stylists, uh, very very few food stylists. Although I would do a lot of food styling myself to try and keep the cost down. Um, and then also like the whole world of like, like the, the thing around recipes is you know the food and wine magazine. So kind of not so much. We've moved away from this is where I've taken the magazine. We've moved away from talking about issues around foraging and stuff like that and actually showing recipes connected to foraging. That's like what people want. It's supposed to be a food magazine. But don't be talking about talking about food. We want to be showing people. So, you know so at Bear Grills. Yeah. So like yeah, so like it, it's it's a difficult area like I don't know how many of you I guess loads of people would like to write about food, <coughs> but how many have maybe studied uh, the culinary arts or been to Ballymaloo or something like that. Like if you can marry that knowledge with the ability to write um, and some photography skills, quite the job to it. Like if you look at Donald Skeen, what he's doing, you know, you know the guy on the TV show, and uh, uh, he started off on a blog. He's now a brilliant photographer. He's done several front covers for us. He's a fantastic writer, um, and he's a really creative recipe creator as well. Like he's quite the machine. So if you're able to come to a, a, an editor and say. I'm, I'm creating this myself. I'm photographing myself. I'm styling myself. It's like it's just a dream for us, Thank you know. Well, I have uh, three questions uh, for Richard now. But before we get them, uh, can I just have a quick show of hands on, on who has a question already, just so that I have an indication? And while we're doing that, we can have maybe a moment's silence for the former British Prime Minister <laughs> Ted Heath. <laughs> um, of course, the rest is Ben Elton, as you can see. Uh, so, how many questions do we have? Okay, that's fine for now. So, we'll come to you in a few moments. <coughs> so, three questions, Richard. The first thing is, what the hell is a live feature? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the start of at the session, uh, we, we do uh, life just to ease people into, into home and uh, food. So, the, the life uh, stories piece is, uh, it's about quirky things uh, Irish people, people are doing. Um, uh, so, for example, we did a piece recently on uh, people who uh, live out of rucksacks and travel the world with just a laptop. Uh, Irish people who don't don't want to own anything, they, they're declutterers in the, in the extreme. Um, if when they come back to Ireland, they just you know rent an apartment, barely furnish it, and uh, then they're gone. And they're, they they do work that allows them to be anywhere at any time. And um, so you know and you know before you used to read like pieces like that in in like in say the Guardian or something like that. Um, but it's, it's now you, you, you are finding Irish people are actually doing these things. Before I used to, look, I used to be reading some human interest stories, I used to look into them, I used to never find Irish case studies. But Twitter is great now for helping you find case studies. You know, you put it out there on Twitter, we're looking to speak to people who did it. And, and people do come back. I, I, I don't know why people are <laughs> appearing in newspapers, but what they do, and you know, we check them out. And uh, a lot of people, like, so say we found some Irish people who are off doing that thing, they have a blog about it, like they're dedicated into it. 
And um, so it's about bringing these type of people. Last week we did a very light one, which was on uh, tour operators who do something out of the ordinary. Um, you know, usually tourists come to Ireland, they get on the bus, bit of diddly eye music, they stop in the pub, drink a pint of Guinness, take the photograph, kiss the blarney stone. Well, these guys are doing, you know, Game of Thrones tours around Ireland. They're uh, producing stories for story maps and things like that. Just really radical type of uh, tourist of tourism ideas. And you always find these people are real, real characters. And I, I find that, you know, a lot of journalism is, is, is really serious. I do a lot of serious stuff, but a lot of the stuff I really like reading about is just, just ordinary people. Uh, you know, because they're, they're very colourful, particularly Irish people. And uh, we have another section called Who I Am, where people talk about their five objects that they own. Mm-hmm. And to balance that, I put in a, a slightly more serious one, which is, which is what I do, which is people just talking about their jobs. And I think that piece has been one of the revelations in the session, because it's really, really interesting to hear from, from people uh, who do kind of corporate jobs. Like we, we, we had a stunt woman recently, um, uh, you know, an Irish stunt woman who does car crashes, and she plays this. She plays the cello as well, but she posed for a picture with the cello on fire for Not her. Not at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. She had fire surrounding her. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think these people are really cool, and uh, it, it, that that's the idea. That sex, section is just bringing these people, you know, telling people about them. Human interest stories, of course, are a terrible problem for those of us who aren't interested in humans. Second, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that includes me, unfortunately. When you become a news reporter, everything just becomes grey. <laughs> um, you kind of answered this already, but if give it a brief answer again. Um, how Irish does a, does a story need to be? Do you, do you need an Irish angle? Yeah, I need one or two, um, because otherwise I'd have the guys in Britain saying, well, we, we could be doing this. Uh, so yeah, I, I, the more the merrier, obviously, but um, like, I mean, if there is, if we're talking about a particular subject and we've got three Irish people who are saying, yeah, I'm doing this or I'm into that, and then we have one British person, I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. Okay. Uh, so I was just actually on that point um, on, on Irish stuff uh, there is and I think this goes beyond I'm sorry my stuff is, is about food you know but I think a lot of it re- relates to other stuff as well um, there's a big bias around you know the canopy circles I would say around Dublin you know around the canals and certain degrees of Dublin area and then there's a, a bias you know against the, the rest of the country and we struggle we would always like when I'm making a decision about news stories or whatever within the magazine I'm always going no, we drop that because that's Dublin, and we keep that because that's the west of Ireland, even though maybe the Dublin story is a better story, because I'm trying to get a national coverage in the, ma- in the magazine and get that balance of the entire country, the entire island of Ireland. And I would just actually say to you, some of the national broadcasters um, have a remit around that, and it's worth considering that when you're pitching stories, uh, that you know maybe you're doing Letter Kenny or you're doing or wherever it is that you're doing, you just in- get a little bit extra chance of being listened to because you're not doing something that's based in the Greater Dublin area. Okay, yeah, that's also an excellent point. And uh, you know, we last year we had uh, a lovely feature editor from the uh, Evening Herald who was talking about it being the only evening paper. I know it's switching to morning, but don't forget the Echo. You know, don't forget the Examiner. The yeah, papers yeah. in this country. Um, Richard, um, last question then is how long should a pitch be? You said you don't want an idea, so you don't want a one-liner. Then you don't want an essay. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, no, I mean, if a pitch is good and it continues being good, <coughs> then that, that's, that's great. I mean, uh, you just need to know that that, that, that journalist's question isn't just thinking about something, that they've actually done the, the work and that, that, that they know where they're going and they have a definite plan. Now, you can tweak it afterwards and, and tweak it with conversation with them. 
But uh, yeah, I think it's just important that, that, that if, if they can't if, if they can't see it themselves and they can't see how the thing might develop and where they go and who they talk to, then they haven't done enough thinking about it. And and that that's that's too far down the chain for for me for me to get involved in. Um, 